The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, it's the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded live in San Diego, California, Wednesday, April 22nd, 2010. Carl and Richard are hitting 15 cities in three weeks, recording a new show every day. Follow them in real time online at .netrocks.com slash roadtrip. The .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2010 Road Trip is brought to you by a handful of sponsors, including the following gold sponsor, Telerik. Deliver more than expected online at www.telerik.com. Preemptive Solutions, powered by Runtime Intelligence, online at preemptive.com. And Redgate Software, ingeniously simple tools, online at red-gate.com. Special support is being provided by the Microsoft Visual Studio team, the Windows Phone 7 team, and the Bing team who developed the Road Trip Tracker application in Silverlight 4. And now, here's Carl and Richard interviewing Billy Hollis in San Diego, California. Hey, San Diego! Welcome to Dotnet Rocks! I love this town. Thank you. I can't believe we were here on the one day a year that it rains. <laughs> it's just not fair. It's just not fair. But, uh, you know, we'd like to thank you for coming out even though it's raining, which I understand is major weather here, isn't it? Because it's so beautiful. Everybody says, oh, the weather in San Diego is sunny all the time. And it is. And that's why we were perplexed when it was cold and rainy this morning. Yeah, it was very disturbing. And, of course, we did the same thing in Los Angeles. It was raining there, which is even more of a disaster because I think they have more cars than you guys have. <laughs> and apparently they need to park them all on the highway when it rains. <laughs> Well, we're here with Billy Hollis, but before we uh, let Billy uh, let Billy loose on you, because I know he's got a lot to say, uh, we just like talk a little bit about the road trip. We're doing this road trip from um, from uh, where was that? The West Coast to the East Coast via the Midwest. Figure yeah. that out. So we're going down the West Coast. We're going across to Texas. We're going up to Chicago and across to Boston and down to Atlanta and hitting 15 cities in between. So it's sort of like we're going back, the reverse of the road trip we did in 2005, but with a few twists and, yeah. it's, and a slightly different t- approach. Yeah, this is like the number five on its side. It's kind of strange. So uh, we're, we don't just do road trip events, of course. When we go out, we talk at conferences all the time. And we're going we, – we have to give some props to our friends 
Friends in Norway at the NDC conference. Indeed, yes. Oslo, Norway, June 16th to 20th. We're going to be there. It's the week after TechEd, so we'll spend a week in New Orleans, then we'll spend a week in Oslo, which is, you know, tough to be us. But... Uh, we're doing- they didn't laugh. I don't think they like you very much. Oh, no, you know, it's a, it's a tough gig, you know. You gotta do, you gotta do something. What do you do for a living? I do something. Uh, the fun part about NDC, of course, is, uh, the show itself is really broad spectrum. There's all kinds of topics there. I'm gonna be doing some scaling stuff, and, uh, I think you've got to talk as well. And then the, our favorite part is we are going to close the show this year with, the full deluxe game show edition of the 64-bit question. Right. And you guys will get a preview of that tonight. And at NDC, we're also had, there's a contest going on there. So if you go to NDC2010.no slash .net rocks, you can enter a contest where you answer a question. And if you get that question right, once a month we draw a winner and we send them a .net rocks mic and the overall winner. So of all those winners, one of them is going to get a full all expense paid trip to NDC. And this month's winner is Marius Andreessen from London, England. Awesome. Give her a big hand for him. Her, him. Sorry about that, Andreas. Yep. Not really sure. It's a somewhat ambiguous name, but that doesn't matter. The mug is on its way to you. Now, there are other ways to get .NET Rocks mugs. Certainly, entering a contest is a good one, but we also will give out .NET Rocks mugs for writing us a great email, sending it to .NET Rocks at franklins.net, and we've got a special edition mug in production right now. It's our thank you mug for all the folks that have helped us make the road trip possible, so it's a limited edition uh, .NET Rocks road trip mug, and we're making a few extras. We want to give them out to folks that come to the show and then blog about it. Take a photo, have a picture in your blog post, send it to us at .NET Rocks at franklins.net, and if we love it, we'll send you a mug. We're going to love it. Don't worry. We'll send you a mug anyway for the effort. So without any further ado, let's uh, introduce the Right Reverend Dr. Billy Soul. Hollis. I'm sorry. I know you hate that. <laughs> Take that back. See, we're in California. We can we can kind of get away with it. Don't try right. to... See, that, now you understand right, why I is, didn't come to be your guest in Atlanta. I know, I know. All right. So so uh, this is an edit point, but I got to tell the story. So have anybody has anybody seen the Grok Talks from TechEd 2005? Uh, where Scott Stanfield did a whole bunch of 10-minute talks, and Billy's talk was on how uh, software developers are addicted to code. And he did this sort of reverend thing, you know, raise your right hand, repeat after me, I am an addict, and it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. I so, can, yeah, I'll do it for him if you right, want to edit it out. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, if you're a code addict, raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, I, I am, am a... a Code addict. And that's the first step to recovery. That's right. Because most developers don't believe, they believe their job is to write code, but that's not true, is it? No, their job is to produce valuable software that solves the user's problem, preferably with the smallest possible amount of lines of code that they can get in it. And you know, when you're a drug drug addict or a code addict, you do the same thing, right? The language is the same. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I joked on the video about it. Coke heads, code heads. It's right. one letter the difference. Lang- yeah. They both do a few lines to get their, <laughs> to feed their addiction. <laughs> so should we really take all that out? That'd be a shame. You can leave it in if you want. It's But it's out there. The video's out there. It's on my website. It's on Google videos. Right. People can watch the video if okay. they want. 
So what have you been thinking about these days? Well, gosh, you know, I, I'm all over the place because I'm, I'm easily bored. How yeah. many people in this industry have ADHD as bad as I do? I know you guys both do. Yeah. So, yeah, oh, I'm yeah. just a, kind of all over the place. We've learned how to harness it for the powers of good. That's We do the best yeah. we can there, yeah. Uh, well, of course, VS 2010, we were at the launch event last yes, week. Yes, we were. So I've been thinking about that a bit. And um, a couple of things about that that are, first of all, the slogan, life runs on code. Now, you know I'm not going to necessarily. First of all, that's wrong. Because yeah. <laughs> life runs on money. That's okay? right. So, so, you know, the idea okay, of so emphasizing the code. Okay, so there's a problem with that right there. That, yeah. But in general, I like 2010. Mm-hmm. I think Visual Studio 2010 is great. I've been using it for several months. Um, the one thing that, that I, when I saw the presentations about it was the Microsoft people keep talking about how productive it is. And you know, actually, for at least the things I do, yeah. the WPF server, it is. But I always worry about that because when have they brought out a new version of Visual Studio and said it was less productive? <laughs> okay. So, so if you take that to your boss, as the excuse you want to buy it. Right. There's two possibilities. Number one is he's going to blow you off. Right. Right. Which, of course, he has every reason to do because you because we tell him this every time. Yeah. And the other possibility is that you go to him and he believes you. <laughs> yeah. Which means we haven't been productive all this time. That's right. Yeah. And so <laughs> either way, you're because, screwed. Look, which, here's here's this. How many of you have had a boss impose an arbitrary, inflexible deadline upon you at some point in time? Yeah. Applause, please. OK, so yeah. that's pretty Proud. much everybody. Hands I think in the industry. Pretty much everybody. So now see if we well, we are the tool is 20 percent more productive. Well, OK, great. I'll buy it. And now we're going to shave 20 yeah. percent off of that. Already inflexible deadline yes. that you have. Yeah, we just took 18 days off your 90 day deadline. Yeah, so congratulations. And and I think it's I don't I would like them to put something in Visual Studio to deal with that problem of the inflexible deadline. I mean, something that yeah. you know you could go to Visual Studio and Visual Studio comes up with something the boss says it can't be done. Just you know, leave below. If it's normally going to take me two weeks, but with Visual Studio 2010, it's going to take me one week. What I really want. Is to take that week off and go to the beach. That's right. That's what well, I really wouldn't, that, want. wouldn't that be the ideal? Because that's so, what they say. You know, productivity means you can have more time to do what you. Oh no. Yeah. Product. But, that's not what that means. Product well, means. Oh, that guy can crank out the code. Let's heap some more on let's him. Put some more on it. So I, I, I mean, I don't know how everybody else deals. This is one of my interview questions. Yes. When I interview people, when they give you that inflexible deadline. How, what, what's your response? See, it's the Kobayashi Maru thing because there's no right answer there. Um, but, uh, but I learned a long time ago to deal with it. I, and I'll tell you one, what, I'll give people one technique that might mm-hmm. work because it worked for me back in the mid nineties once. I had a, had a guy that came over to a software company that I was leading a team at. He was from a, he was president of a steel company before that. Okay. Now that just makes a lot of sense, doesn't yeah, it? It's the same just business, really. It's a yeah. technology company. They both use electricity. Yeah. You know? <laughs> They both have bosses. And so he comes in, and, and we're in the middle of a project a couple months into it, and he calls us all in. And he says, okay, I've drawn up the new schedules for all of the project completions, and you guys are to be complete in May. This is February. This isn't a Dilbert cartoon I saw. No, this, it's, this just... is Dilbert got his inspiration from this kind of stuff. <laughs> and so I go, no, no, we've already figured it out. It's going to take till July. And he says, well, you don't understand. The market has demanded that we have it ready in May. And and we went back and forth for like days about this. And he's just, well, the market says you have to have it done in May. And finally, I went to him and said, okay, let me put together a new budget 
to get it to make it available to you in May. Right. We have to spend some, and now cheap, I, fast, bug yeah, free. Pick I'm any talking two. his yeah. language, and he really likes it. So I drew up the budget, put it on a piece of paper, and put it in front of him. It had three items on it. Item one was new computers, ten thousand dollars. Testing software, two thousand dollars. A time machine to bring the finished product back from the future. One hundred quadrillion dollars. But I pointed out that he could reuse the time machine on other projects if he funded it. And so finally, he he, he reads over that. He, reads, he, he looks up at that sour expression that business executives get, you know. It says, "Why? Well, what I'm hearing you say is that you can't get it done in May." <laughs> Duh. Yes. Thus, now you understand. That's what I said the first ten times. So I, you know, I, I want Visual Studio doesn't help us much there. It, it is, it is great, but I, I wish we could do something about that. And I don't know that this industry is ever going to do anything about that. You know, there was a lot of discussion coming into Visual Studio 2010, which I think has sort of died down now, about more project management, about the TFS side and so forth. You, you know, the Architects Edition of of Studio 2008, the the real redheaded stepchild of Studio, the one that nobody <laughs> yeah. bought, was supposed. You know, that was supposed to be drawn back in, and they were going to make a better version. And, and we were going to get more of that planning side of things. But I've just not seen anything about that. It's, it's sort of faded off into the ether. Well, I, I don't know that we as an industry have – things evolve so quickly. Our technologies right. evolve. Our methodologies evolve. I mean, we look at, at for example, Agile stuff, which really isn't that old. And now it, – and it, it changes every year. I mean, whatever some Agile guy tells you is the right thing this year to do, next year, you know, some other guy will tell you that it's something different. How about this phrase? Everything we've told you in the last year is completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you were talking – I mean, the timelines here, those are very short. It was February when you were arguing about deliverable in May that you knew you'd have to do it. You couldn't get to it in July. Yeah. You're talking three months and five months. Yeah. You know, most significant construction projects of anything take longer than that. Yeah. Well, I think the problem – one of the problems we face is that to the fundamentally to the people who are signing the checks and running the businesses, et cetera, uh, it's all magic to them. Yeah. We're just, we might as well be back there stirring cauldrons and Stamping saying incantations. Yeah. yeah because take, they don't have take a clue. Three developers and a pile of computers and a bucket <laughs> of money and you stir <laughs> and you wait about three months and then you wonder what happened. <laughs> did, did it start bubbling or yeah. not? <laughs> what happened? What were you guys doing? And we don't, and we don't help. Okay. Because no. we don't. We, first of all, we don't give as much pushback as we should. Yeah. We often get focused off on the wrong things, the things that make us kind of happy. And, and that, that's, I, I worry about that problem. Yeah. The other side of this would have been to come at him and say, okay, you know, we can make bay with, we need to cut features, right? Given we've got a set amount of cash and a set amount of skills and we've got a fixed deadline. Now let's make a smaller program. Yes. But in this case, it was like the market demanded. The but all this stuff be there. And, uh, you yeah. know, some executives are, I, I shouldn't, I don't want to throw them all in the bucket because some of them are good. Mm-hmm. Some of mm-hmm. them understand the triangle and they understand um, that you don't get developer. First of all, setting arbitrary deadlines after about the second one, now you've lost any motivational capability that you ever had yeah. in doing it. And some of them do figure that out eventually, especially after they pumped three or four million into a software project that becomes a death march and they end up throwing every way, everything away at the end. What's, what bothers me is that they have to spend that money right. to learn the lesson. So what are some of the, I mean, it sounds, you know, you got some passionate ideas about the things that things people are doing wrong. What are some suggestions you have uh, to them as far as 
things to avoid. I mean, there's a lot of popular um, there's a lot of popular ideas about how software yeah. should be done and how it should be built, and you don't necessarily agree with all. Well, that. not all of them, and particularly, I don't agree with sort of the evangelical nature, I guess, yeah. of, of some of them. I, I mean, uh, and, and see, you got, you asked me that question, and you know, you're trying to get me in trouble <laughs> because you know. I want the people what? to know what you're because thinking. Because I know Agile all. is very popular. Yeah. And, and, and for a lot of people it works. And 90% of the people that I run into who do agile are pragmatic about it. It's yeah. a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It helps them get their software done better. And I think that is absolutely fabulous and wonderful. As long as they don't believe that it's the right answer for everything and try to impose on. But, but, but some of the people get emotionally involved. The one right like, way. Yeah. I, I had a guy sit across from me in an interview once. Mm-hmm. This is about a year ago, 18 months. And he said, he looked at me and said, well, I think you should know I'm passionate about test-driven development. And see, I'm sitting there thinking, well, you know, you should be passionate about your wife or your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's kind of how the way the world is supposed to work. And, and test-driven development is just a means to an end. Right. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning, I can't help it, I'm envisioning this guy on his wedding night, okay? <laughs> and, you know, his wife, is his new bride, is in there getting print. You oh, know, this isn't going to end well. And he's on his keyboard, out, you know, <laughs> while she's there. And she comes out, she, you know, fixes herself up in the bed, and she's sort of... He's like, I got a couple of orange yes, lights. Just yes, give me yes, ten yes. more minutes. That's, that's basically it. Because she's, because at some point she's just getting tired and going, you know, honey, aren't you going to come to bed, and make love first time as husband and wife? And he said, Well, I have to write the test first to make sure it's successful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't help but look at things that way because while I. <laughs> Well, I think all of those are good things. I just don't want people to get so wrapped up in them. Right. And in some cases, it's just, you know, it's kind of common sense stuff. I look at some of the stuff in Scrum, and I think, you know, that's pretty good, but that's kind of common sense. Right. And And I know they go to school for like a week to learn how to be a Scrum master, mm-hmm. and I don't know enough about it to, to get it because it looks to me like you could write a program almost to be a Scrum master, right? Just I, th- I thought about doing this as my next Silverlight project. I would write automatedscrummaster.com. <laughs> <laughs> so what so it would add do, some speech synthesis right, right. so it that's actually talks to you. some speech synthesis. Yeah. So you log in and you know it says, "Well, what did you do today?" <laughs> you, you type some stuff in and it says, "Good, good." <laughs> so what are you going to do tomorrow? <laughs> You know, face that up. Well, anything holding you up? (laughs) How are the kids? You know, that's, I mean, I know there's got to be more to it than that. But when I tell that joke, everybody laughs. So I'm thinking that maybe there isn't that much more to it after all. I'm not really sure. Uh, where are you? I don't know. It's a say like that. Just so there's got to be other things that are sticking in your craw these days that uh, we well, can talk about. You just you see ask questions like that to get me to rant. I you know you love of it. course you love me to rant. That's what we're here for. Um, well, so, well, let's see. Um, I guess one of the other things that does bother me a lot about modern software development is it. It looks to me like for every new thing we learn how to do pretty well, we forget how to do something we used to know how to do well mm-hmm. as an industry. So, for example, we used to know how to write good reference documentation. 
and good help files. Sure. And as best I can tell, does anybody know how to do that anymore? Because so, that, didn't, that didn't seems the to be a tool, The tool broke about three years ago, and nobody noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, when's the last time you actually could make a CHM file anymore? That, yeah. Remember RoboHelp? <laughs> <laughs> this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the new TFS Work Item Manager and TFS Project Dashboard. So if you're spending a lot of time on organizing the cluttered pile of work items in TFS, get ready for a fresh and intuitive experience. The guys at Telerik just launched the TFS Work Item Manager and Project Dashboard, a couple of free tools designed to make working with Team Foundation Server faster and easier. Unlike the standard TFS Explorer, the Work Item Manager lets you take advantage of powerful capabilities like filtering, as-you-type search, grouping and aggregation, and iteration scheduling. You can even see all the work items in a Scrum dashboard view, as if watching the whiteboard in your own room. Project Dashboard is a unique tool for visualizing TFS data. Useful for both developers and project managers, it helps you keep track of the latest TFS project activity like current iteration progress, build history, recent check-ins, assigned tasks and bug history, and to understand the health of the project as a whole. The TFS tools are brought to you by Telerik and Imaginet the experts in application lifecycle management. Built with RAD controls for WPF, they're both amazingly flexible and responsive. Go to Telerik.com and download the TFS tools for free. And hey, don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. One of the standard slides I put up in some of my, some of my evening sessions, I have one that everybody has seen this help page, okay? That, you know, you're, you're, you're nosing around in the framework trying to find out how to do something. Right. And you see this, the do something method. And you think, right. it's, you think this is going to maybe help you. Yeah. And so you go to the help page on it. And it says, and it says the do something. something method does something. That's right. <laughs> Press v the stop button yes. if you'd like it to stop. Yes. <laughs> VB syntax, do something, parentheses. Yeah. C sharp syntax, do something, parentheses, yeah. semicolon. It should just be a don't waste your time with this yeah. page and that's it. Well, and then or, the, or it should just well, say, are you kidding me? Don't forget the see also. Do something else method is the, is the see also. And, and, that's, and that's the entire page. How many of you have seen that page? Yeah. How about, yes. The whole hand, Every day over the well, it's, it's this generated documentation, right? Like somebody's yeah. written a tool that goes and parses the assemblies and spits out that. Actually, I can I can tell you what that is because that is, and I learned this from a Microsoft guy. When they build help files, that is what the boilerplate is before anybody touches it and puts in the real stuff. So what you stumbled upon was something that nobody bothered to write. Nobody ever really wrote. Yeah, yeah. that's just the. You boilerplate. are the first person to have looked at that yeah. page. So <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so that's that's something that's been bothering me. And then um let's see what else. I um uh, of course, you know, I live in Nashville and mm -hmm. Nashville doesn't have a huge number of enterprise we have a we have kind of an informal rule in, in our consulting business is we do not consult for any company that has anybody with the term with the job title enterprise architect anywhere in it. Ah, uh, okay. Okay? Because in Nashville our target is the smaller people who, who need what we do better. Mm -hmm. So uh so that's fine. Um but what I notice is that over the last oh, six or eight years, 
we kind of become fixated on that enterprise stuff to a certain extent. And, and that's all right because there's a lot of enterprise stuff to be done. Mm-hmm. There, the inter, the, those big companies are doing a lot of stuff. And gosh, I wish somebody that knew how to do things would, for example, go and fix AT&T's website, which is just, <laughs> for example, which is just awful. Just picking one at random. Just to pick, to pick one I completely totally at random. Agree. Yeah. And uh, yeah, some, some of you know about yeah, how no, they, that's they're just, they're cheering. It's just awful. So, um, so I understand that the enterprise stuff is needed, but um, uh, you, you, you risk kind of getting out of touch. So I have this ongoing, interesting relationship with like the Patterns and Practices group at Microsoft. Oh, yeah. And they're really focused on that enterprise stuff, and that's their mission. And so they, mm-hmm. they kind of but, – but I have reservations sometimes about what they do. I was, I was listening to a Patterns and Practices guy talking – Oh, this was probably about two years ago. He was talking about pair programming. Oh, yeah. Which which I think is pretty interesting, having somebody... And, two guys, one keyboard. Yeah, you know. and my partner's... Kind of like Ferrante and Teicher. You know? <laughs> yeah, or Penn and Teller, you know. Yeah, exactly. So uh, these are... Uh, George and Ira. Uh, just my own, and my own partner and I kind of oh, get Richard. together. <laughs> Richard and Carl, there you Carl go. Richard. <laughs> so I think it's pretty interesting. And of course... There's the economist in me going, that's good, but is it worth twice as much yeah. as one of the guys working along? Have is, you doubled their product? You know, are they, they've only got one keyboard between them. Are yeah. they actually still generating as much code? Are as they, they generating have? as much value? Okay. Not necessarily Not as much okay. code, I'm with you. as much value. Yeah. And they might be. Depending on be. circumstances and the people, they might be. Mm-hmm. I've so seen he, it. I've seen it work. I've really seen it well. work. And, and I'm sure it works for some and probably doesn't work for others. Sure. So this guy's there and he talks about that. Then in his next session, he's talking about test driven development. And he says he writes three lines of testing code for every line of production code. And I'm thinking now that's. That's a lot of code. That's a lot of code, man. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking code addict time here, isn't it? You know? Yes. <laughs> and, and so he finished and then he says, Oh, and my, he's talking about testing to get that code right, how important right. it all is. And, and, you know, there are situations in which all this is needed if you're sending rovers to Mars or whatever. Right. But he's talking about kind of routine business development, or at least that's what I thought. Building crud apps. Right. And, and so uh, he says, now, my preferred ratio of testers to developers is two testers to one developer. Okay. Now, I think it's more usually the other way. Right. One tester to two developers is, but he says, I prefer that ratio of two. So, and given my, a pair of programmers, he, you're saying not just one tester, but, but four, four testers. Yes. So, my response to that was, I prefer to have two blonde supermodels in my bed every night. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, reality is not constructed to make that possible. And so it doesn't happen. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that in the typical enterprise software development project with the typical budget, you're never going to get that level of testers. And so that was, you know, I, I, I hear that sort of thing and I know it's well-meaning. I know that people are trying to improve the quality and make things better. But I'm, I'm afraid that some of that focus on the huge projects kind of loses touch. And uh, and, and I, I, I kind of got into a... A little bit of a contest of 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 what would you say contest of priorities, contest of viewpoints. Yes, there. Yeah, because you know, from my from a, <laughs> let's look, first look at it from a business guy's perspective. Yeah. So you've now, as far as he's concerned, a pair of programmers just doing what one guy did before. Right. He doesn't 
He's not thinking in terms of doubling value. And then you said three times, you're writing four times as much code, three lines. Right. So in order to get that given block of uh, given value, the, the amount of code that's going to get written and the amount of value, yeah. you know, that getting that task written, you're going to take four times longer because you got to write all that task code. Right. And then you've got all those extra testers lying around. Right. I once kind of ran through the math and it was like 12, from a business guy's perspective, it's 12 times the resources to get the same unit of work done. Now, that's not really true, is it? No. But it looks like that. It does. When you do the math the that way. Guy. Yeah. That's when it. you do, because they're not, as we said before, it's all magic to them anyway. Yeah. So they just, they kind of fall back on whatever they learned for the MBA, and that's that's kind of the way they would do it. So, I mean, I finally ran out of ways to express it, ex- except to say that, you know, gosh, I do a lot of work on my own. I have a great a fellow named Gary Bailey, who's my partner, mm-hmm. who helps me, uh, who, who is just a superb developer. The two of us kind of pretty much work together. We team up when we need to, but we, we do quite a bit of work on our own. And I, I don't I don't understand what it's like to live in that world. And I'm thinking, you know, if you've got to have somebody looking over your shoulder with every line of code you write, and you must write three lines of testing code for every line of production code to make sure you get it right, and you must have four testers testing everything that you do, then you must suck as a coder. (laughs) I mean, I don't know any other way to look at it. Go back to school. So, I don't know. How are we doing on time, guys? What are we doing? Oh, I don't know. We're okay, I think. Input, no input. Yeah, I don't well, know what time it is. Um, Thirty-one. So that's a that's that's one thing that that I've been thinking about a lot. And the other one of the other big big things I've been, I, you know, I've been doing this advanced user interface stuff, WPF Serverlight now for about four years, and I will tell you that it absolutely changes the way you look at software development in a way. That I've only had one or two other changes in in a really? long thirty year career, and 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 recognizing you made the transition to .NET, right? You, but the transition to dot did not to .NET did not fundamentally change my view of how software should be written. Really? So because object orientation, I already had that, right? I already mm-hmm. understood those. I already understood relational databases. I understood event driven, etc. Those were big transitions. Right. You're talking but, about the declarative nature. Yeah. The declarative nature and the necessity to engage the right side of your brain to get an optimal result. That you cannot, as best as I can tell, get an optimal result with those technologies the traditional way you've always done with just sort of an analyzing your way through the problem. Mm -hmm. See, we can get away with that with earlier user interface technologies because our degrees of freedom were so limited, we just stamp out something that looked like other things. Well, we were we, told to. I, yeah. I found recently found my copy of Microsoft's uh, application design guidelines yeah. that included the the file menu must be here and the help menu must be there. Yeah, those all went away, didn't yeah. they? Nobody yeah. really cared. That's all out the well, window. Well, the web now. world pretty much blew that to pieces. Yes, and 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 then when when WPF the whole XAML stack came along, they didn't provide guidance. They said here. Here's this thing. I think they didn't provide guidance because they didn't know what it should look like. Yeah. Well, they gave I, us a reflective, uh, you know, surface. Yes. Mirror <laughs> the reflection. See, that was the, know, a that. lot of the early WPF and, and samples, and then later Silverlight samples, actually did not show off, from my perspective, the the strengths of of the the environment, and and I think that comes out of the fact that while, first of all, let me let me say something about those technologies. Mm-hmm. They are. 
They are exquisitely good technology. Some of the best stuff to ever, ever come out of Microsoft in my whole career. Their rendering engine and the object model, it's all just absolutely fabulous. Now, having said that... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> There's your love. Yeah. Now let's move on. I, it is. <laughs> it's pretty clear to me that there are a lot of people inside Microsoft who do not understand what they have wrought mm-hmm. in terms of how to effectively use it. I understand, for example, there was a session at TechEd last year where one of the team was talking about animation. Mm-hmm. And he said, as best as I, I heard the quote, animation is good for drawing attention to things. That's what you primarily use it for. Now, from... As for somebody who's been using this technology for four years, that's not just wrong. That's 180 degrees wrong. (laughs) Because actually what animation and gradient colors and some of those things do is to lower the stress levels in applications. They make them feel more natural. People's brains didn't evolve in a world where things disappeared here and reappeared over there. Right. And so the ability to gradually change things and gradually fade them out gives the users some natural feeling and lower stress and higher productivity than they ever had before. And that's the strength of those technologies, not trying to get in their face. A couple of weeks ago, Billy came up to the studio and we were recording uh, videos on Silverlight uh, 4. And this point came up and he said, just take a look at a piece of paper lying on the desk or Billy's shirt or my shirt or whatever. The wall over there. Yeah, would you say that's one color? And... You know, when somebody moves and it moves around, colors shift. So he showed this thing where uh, there's a gradient that just gradually changes just a little bit. And it's just very, very subtle changes. But it looks more real that way. That's it. That's what he's talking about, right? That's what you're talking about. The yeah, animation that about. does subtle things that make things look more real. Yeah. And then uh, in, in addition to, to incorporating those capabilities, which most developers have never learned to do because we couldn't do them mm-hmm. in earlier technologies. There's also these degrees of freedom that mean, I mean, users vary a whole lot. And so we ought to be able to respond to them and give them different capabilities for what they what they need. Um, we do more prototypes than we ever did before. And we tend to just knock them out in a hurry, two or three days apiece. Sure. But what we're trying to do is explore enough different alternatives so that we don't leave behind the one that really makes sense for this class of users. Because the idea that we can just sort of copy somebody else is and get an optimal user interface, I think is gone. Which means that as, as, a, as a community, some of us are going to have to step up to the plate and get into these design sensibilities and, and understand a little bit more about... Uh, see, we're, we're focused on, on things like... I, I hear MVVM. I hear MVVM all the time. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with MVVM. It's a good pattern. And there's a broad class of apps for which it's really good. Mm-hmm. But but to me, the, the value in something like that is the ability to very easily throw up different views for different categories of users. If you're not using it for that, if you're not using it to make the user's lives better, the users don't care what your pattern is. Right. In, in I don't the think the users ever care what your pattern is. No, I don't is. think they know what All they see is yeah. pixels on a screen. Yeah. That's all they know. doesn't really matter. How's that pattern working out for you, Bob? Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting you talk about these subtleties because I think we're the worst for picking up on them because we're so conditioned for them to be absent. Right. Our, our Most of our tools aren't subtle at all. You know, I'm hoping I, I haven't really studied Visual Studio 2010 enough. I've used it, but the thing that's nasty or sneaky about these subtleties is that if they're done right, 
you don't notice them. That's exactly right. Your your goal is that the users like your design, but they can't yeah. tell you why. Right. They don't know what it is. And that's really foreign because we think everything should be verbalized. Don't well, we? and very deliberate. Yeah. Everything is. And I remember, you know, who's really quite talented is, and you know him as well as Mark Miller. Yes. I was just going to bring up Mark yeah. because you both have this sort of this sense, same sensibility of design. Well, and I remember Mark pointing at this is the guy who does Code Rush, right? And so he was talking. He he was showing us. He was very passionate about this oddest thing. It was changing the order of parameters in a method, which is a typical refactoring capability. It's just not that big a deal. But the way he did it, the the method, na- uh, the parameter names picked themselves up and swapped places. What he was most excited about was how the comma between the two me- uh, the two parameters moved very naturally to be in the right place as these two things jumped up, changed places. <laughs> it would just eh, be in the right spot. And the thing was. I couldn't see it for the longest time because it was so natural. It just it wouldn't occur to you. that you know, Stop looking at the thing flying around. Watch the comma. <laughs> and the comma goes, eh. I'm like, that's what you're excited about? You couldn't even see it. Now you see it. You don't care. <laughs> Maybe that's why I couldn't see it. <laughs> but it, it's subtle. It, these, these little things that it was so, it looked like that is a, a set of a block of wood and you took two pieces of wood and moved them. Mm-hmm. It was completely physical. Yeah. I find audio to be the same way that people know when it only when it's bad. That's right. You know, they otherwise they don't pay attention to it because they're audio not pros. Is, well, cuz good audio is everywhere. It's ubiquitous yeah. in the radio and television and movies and stuff. But uh, you know, as anybody who's ever tried to do a podcast knows, it's not easy to make it sound natural. Yeah. So And and it bothers me a lot to hear developers look at this stuff and hear the kind of stuff that we just talked about and go, oh, you know, I'm just not any good at that sort of thing. Right. Well, you know, probably some of them are not, but I think people would be surprised at how good they can be yeah. when they sort of turn that other. A lot of people are sitting out there with one side of their brain almost dormant mm. that they just aren't really using it. And there are exercises. There are things you can do to to uh, to, to light up that part of your brain. Uh, one of the things I do in, in a session that I did at Connections uh, last fall and then I'm going to be doing it tech yet again this year, is uh, an exercise where I, I have people sketch out the design of the last user interface for a product they worked on. And it's and then I draw a little thing up there, which is basically a screen full of rectangles. With people, and I go, is this your design, basically, plus <laughs> or minus? And they all go, yep, yep, that's my design. And so then I hand out a bunch of papers a sheet of paper to each person with with six random curved shapes. And I go, now you are required to reimagine your user interface for that product, and you must incorporate this non-rectangular curved shape. Right. And and, and it breaks down pretty interesting. 20% of the people sit there and stare at the paper and do nothing. Yeah, suddenly like... For 15 minutes. I'm in the wrong session. And, yeah. (laughs) I need ice cream. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then maybe 20 or 25% get excited. They... It, it forces them to think of an idea. Something lights up. That, that, that they never right. would before. And then the rest are kind of somewhere in between where they go, you know, that's interesting and I want to try that some more, but I'm just not, you know, I, 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 it doesn't come to me instantly. Well, they want, I think there's a large portion of us who want to activate that side of the brain, you know, and they feel, they know what that could be like, but it, but somehow just there are hurdles there. Yeah. So there are, there are things that you can do to keep that, to, to get, to sort of, 
get that side of the brain in gear. You can, for example, keep a, uh, I, I read in a, one of the, the books I read had a suggestion to keep a design notebook. When you see good designs, and I don't just mean software. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you see anything around you that you think has a good design, you sketch it out and you talk about what, what makes that a good design. And you read books like Universal Principles of Design. Now, that is an excellent book to start with when people Who wrote begin. that book? I don't remember the author, um, but I can tell you a lot about the, the format, which is very unusual. There are about a hundred principles in this book. And for each principle, he narrows himself down to one page to describe the principle. Mm -hmm. And then on the facing page are tangible examples of the principle in action. Interesting. And and so if you've ever been a writer, you know that constraining yourself down to a a, a short length like that means you will say the most important thing there is to know about that particular subject. That was Mark Twain's line. I had to write a long letter because I didn't have time to write a short one. one. Yeah, so so it's it's well written. And some of the things have absolutely no application to software at all. Right. But it's surprising to me how many of them do. Wow, excellent. So, uh, what are you working on now? What's, what's really firing you up these days? Well, we, uh, my, my team back in Nashville, of course, tends to spend a fair amount of time in the healthcare arena. Mm-hmm. And we're working with a company now that is nibbling at the fringes of some stuff that I think is extremely important because mm-hmm. we are on the verge. You know, I hated to see the debate over healthcare go the way it did, mostly because these people are missing the point. Healthcare is about to change beyond recognition yeah. as we move from a system in which the see doctors are basically information processors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They don't they would they don't really want to admit that, but what they do is they gather data, they interpret it, they decide what other data they need, they integrate that, they come to a diagnosis, and they tell you what the treatment is. That's all information processing. And they write things that sound like... Blah, 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 yeah, yeah, blah, when they blah, get blah, done. Blah. And the problem is that we pass the ability for them to hold everything in their head to do that mm-hmm. long, long ago. So you're talking about electronic diagnosticians? We're, well, we're... Uh, yeah, I'm talking about... Assisted, electronic assists okay. to diagnosis. We're going to be moving into that world as soon as we get enough data online to mine it, to find the trends and do all. And, and fortunately, there are companies that are working at that. It may take us a while because those rule systems are not trivial by any means, no. but that's going to revolutionize medicine in a way that, that I think most, most people I, don't realize. I, it's fun to work in. I totally agree. I actually worked on a system like that in uh, the early 90s. And uh, we were talking about that in New London too, mm-hmm. but it's it's just amazing how some simple technology can really speed up the process of of uh, clinical diagnosis. And uh, to to see the, the fact that we we I don't think we're going to be able to educate doctors fast enough. We're not going to be able to to meet the demand for healthcare if we don't fundamentally change things. And there are, of course, other things around the edge that fit into this very nicely. Um, Nashville has a lot of healthcare technology. Yeah. Most people don't know that. Mm-hmm. There's a company there that sells machines that go in drugstores or in vans, go to churches, and you pay 100 bucks and you stick your arm in and it's non-invasive. They give you a bunch of tests. Right. They They're, test your cholesterol and, and various things. They see whether you got buildup in your carotid hmm. arteries. I've, I've seen booths. I, I, I saw something on television. I can't remember where it was. Maybe it was uh, Beyond Tomorrow or something like that, where there was a, 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 a little room like a portable toilet size mm-hmm. in a city somewhere. And somebody would go in one at a time and there'd be a doctor on the screen, but there'd be no people in there. But there would be – you'd be connected visually and to uh, – Equipment, you know, yeah. for taking and all sorts of measurements data. and yeah, it's gathering, gathering data, data and somebody's looking at that. They can do prescriptions. They can do diagnoses. They can 
You know. So we've got to get a critical mass of all the data in some kind of electronic form because mm-hmm. you go in the t- typical doctor's office and they got this shelf full of file folders Still paper. up there, right? And so we're just kind of on so the verge. afraid to lose it, but, right? but people are so worried about healthcare, and I don't really think they should be because I think we're on the verge of an absolute revolution there that's going to make things wonderful if the regulators don't clamp down on it so badly that the innovation is killed. Yeah, it's an interesting balance between uh, maintaining patient integrity and, and keeping the healthcare system functioning while trying to advance the it, technology. It is, a, it is a tough challenge, but I'm, I'm convinced after years of working it that it can be met. So Silverlight, WPF, you think Silverlight, far more use? Uh, Most far, people, I think, more. are – I just had an email, actually, from a, a, a client that I taught WPF mm-hmm. to a couple of years ago. And I'm having a good time teaching WPF and Silverlight classes, too. That's just absolutely a blast. Hmm. I haven't had – because, you know, I've been thinking about it for four years. Most people are just now starting. Right. It's really easy to look smart in front of a group when you've had four years to think about something that they haven't even seen. So, uh, <laughs> so I was there about two years ago. Uh, it's a place up in Chicago. And, and they sent me a thing today saying, is there any reason for us to use WPF anymore with Silverlight 4? And I replied, well, unless you're doing offline databases or some things like that, there are some use cases for WPF, but they're fairly narrow. Great. Silverlight 4's uh, use case is much broader than it, than earlier versions of Silverlight. And I think we're going to see at least 80-20 in terms of development in Silverlight well, and, versus And that's WPF. presuming, I mean, the, the thing is both those technologies are still moving forward. I just got to think the two lines will merge. Yeah, probably so. They're pretty close now. Yeah. If, if you spent your time in WPF over the last couple of years instead of Silverlight, you're actually better positioned to take advantage of Silverlight 4. Right. Because you understand principles that were only introduced in Silverlight 4. Interesting. So if you if you worked in WPF, don't think that you wasted your time because you didn't. Turning your brain around to how to use these new technologies takes time. And actually, I would argue that WPF was the superior platform to do that mm. up until Silverlight 4 was released. What are some of those principles that Silverlight 4 is just introducing? Uh, well, things like targeted styles, the ability to to set up your style system in such a way that things naturally target. Uh, there were a lot of holes that you had to uh, to fill in Silverlight that WPF wasn't a problem. Things like animation of certain kinds of of, uh, of transforms. Mm-hmm. Just those, some of those things were left out of Silverlight. And so if you got to a point where you didn't get in the habit of using those things, now you got to break that. Whereas if you were in WPF, it feels very natural to use those things, the superior data binding stuff that WPF had and that Silverlight has gotten. There's just a variety of little things. But it, the, the big thing to understand is if you know one, you're about 90% of the way to knowing the other. And it doesn't matter really which one at this point you so start So it's certainly with. not mutually exclusive. Should we just start referring it all as XAML? Do we don't I, need I do the product sometimes. names anymore? I do that sometimes. My, the most popular class I teach is combined WPF and Silverlight. Right. Where basically I teach both. And in a few places I go, now WPF does this and Silverlight doesn't. Or Silverlight does this and WPF doesn't. Mm-hmm. But 90% of it is the same for both. Right. And, and that way they get to see both and decide which one makes sense for particular circumstances. That's very cool. Well, we're just about out of time. So is there uh, any shout outs or anything you want to publish or promote or woohoo or hi mom or anything? Well, like that? gosh, I better say something about because because Huckabee make fun of me if I don't um, that 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 my book, my W, the, the long, long, long delayed WPF book is back in in place uh, being being done and, and is projected to be out sometime this fall. Um, I'm, I'm well along in getting the content for that. So people have been asking about that and I get two or three emails a week. Excellent. It's, it's coming. Just 
Hang in there. It's coming. And also, of course, the DVD Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis will be available at franklins.net. I had probably a blast a doing that, Carl. month or so. Yeah, I, that, had, I had fun. I can't imagine how great that's going to be when it's finally done. I've seen the first three already, and they, they just look great. So thank you, Billy. Thanks to Billy Hollis. Give him a big thank hand. Thank you all. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rock. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.